2: the Russia-Ukraine conflict changed the face of Europe? That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura ross and for today's show, we want to share an FP live about the ongoing conflict in
0: Ukraine.
2: FP editor-in-chief Ravi Agrawal sat down with Fiona Hill, former National Security Council advisor on Russia during the Trump administration. They talk about President Vladimir Putin's endgame in Ukraine. Here's that conversation.
0: Hello and welcome to FP Live, foreign policy magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's editor-in-chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. Our guest today is Fiona Hill, a former senior White House advisor and an expert in all things Russia. We'll bring her on in just a minute, but first, FP Live discussions are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks and we get to dive deep into the issues. It's a perk of your FP subscription to get to ask questions. So please click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. Tell us your name and where you're writing from. I'm happy to include questions from subscribers throughout the interview. Now, Russia's military is turning its sights to occupying Donetsk, the neighboring province of Luhansk, which which it managed to take control of over the July 4th weekend. Donetsk and Luhansk together make up the Donbass region, the industrialized eastern part of Ukraine, which really is at the geographic heart of the current state of play of the conflict between the two countries. Russian military, uh, Russian missiles continue to rain down uh, on that eastern province. Now, while it's true that President Vladimir Putin is finally starting to make some gains. It's important to remember that Russia's military is hurting too, with some 15,000 Russian soldiers dead and even more injured. Of course, NATO has come out of its summit in Madrid more united, more prepared. It's expanded and it's better funded than ever before. So what does this all mean for Putin? What will he consider a victory in this war? And does the West have any leverage to try and reach a settlement? To discuss all of this and more, let's bring in our guest now. Dr. Fiona Hill became a national icon after her testimony in President Donald Trump's impeachment hearings in 2019. But before that, she had a long and distinguished career in government. She's currently a senior fellow at Brookings, Prior to that, served as Trump's Russia advisor and was the senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. She has served under three presidents, Presidents Bush, Obama, and of course, Trump. Her most recent book is There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Fiona Hill, welcome to FP Live.
1: Thank you so much, Rob. It's really great to be with you.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you on. Um, So I thought I'd start with the state of play, I guess. Um, You know, many U.S. experts are warning that the West is running out of time. Tom Friedman wrote in The Times this week that Putin is basically telling his generals to just get him to Christmas when winter sets in and gas shortages in Europe will be especially painful. Fareed Zakaria had a similar take in The Post, arguing that the West still isn't doing enough. How should we assess these warnings, really? Uh, Because, of course, the West has limited economic leverage at this point, and then there's also the threat of escalation. Uh, so how do you read it, Fiona?
1: Well, I mean, just the very fact that we framed it like this, and, you know, which we have in most of the analyses, um, hides, I think, the fact that Putin himself may also be running against uh, time limits. And of course, he wants to push it back so that we are the ones who are on the back foot, always wondering about you know whether we can make it, whether we can persevere, because of course, this is also a part of an information war. Uh, basically to say, give up now, uh, there all hope is lost. You can't possibly prevail, cut your losses. And sue for peace. This is the kind of the messaging that's really coming out of the Kremlin and being filtered out by all of the actions that Putin is taking. And the really the reason that I want to stress this is there is the magical date of twenty twenty four, which is coming up pretty fast at this particular point. Mm. Now, we think 2024, we think US presidential elections, and of course, right. we have midterms coming up, and that's part of the framing for us in thinking about this, uh, and you know the fact that our own politics is being very much affected. And we know from polling, for example, that President Biden is getting no boost whatsoever for his commitment to Ukraine, although support for Ukraine remains fairly robust at the popular level in the United States as it does in Europe. It is actually, of course, hurting uh, the United States and other Western politicians because of inflation and the pressures on energy uh, and also food security, for example. But Putin also has to get reelected or at least re-legitimized in 2024, in March, in fact. President Zelensky of Ukraine also will have to have um, an election then as well, although I would say that, you know, given the circumstances, that one might be, you know, kind of more of an obvious um, uh, outcome. And one would think it would be the same case with Putin. But look, Putin um, launched this special military operation, thinking it would be over in a matter of days. The point here is that this is dragged on for Russia as well. And all of this messaging from Putin saying we haven't begun yet, we haven't um, even, you know, kind of... Hit The tip of the iceberg of the carnage and destruction that we can uh, wreak here is messaging so that we will pull back because he is also concerned about the implications for the stability of his own system. And a lot of Mm. people invested in this system. And by the time we get out beyond those magical dates of the winter and into next year, the impacts on the Russian economy from all of the sanctions that have been uh, taken, irrespective of high oil and gas prices, will start to be felt.
0: Right. And by which time, of course, Europe may have been able to wean itself off uh, at least a little bit more um, from Russian oil and gas, other parts of the world as well. But, you know, one thing you said there really sort of struck me about Putin being worried about re-election. And just let's let's spend another minute or two on that, because, you know, I think to outside observers, to people who don't know him as well, or the Russian system as well, that almost seems surprising. I mean, this is a person who is, you know, fairly authoritarian leader who seems to have coup proofed himself he has such control over tv media at least um, he's able to control the messaging at least that's how i think many people perceive him outside uh, um, uh, of maybe russia circles or or circles that know him well why is it you think that he would be fearful um, of 2024 in that sense
1: because he's fearful of a repetition of what happened when he last returned to the presidency in 2011 and 12, where we had all of the protests in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other major cities. And Putin knows that there is a lot of dissatisfaction hidden beneath the surface. I mean, people seem to be supportive of this special military operation, um, as long as, you know, Petersburg and Moscow, you know, the, the the kids of the elite are not being sent off as cannon fodder to the front. Mm. We're starting to see some backlash from the marginal areas of Russia, you know, Buryatia, for example, where we know there's been, you know, an awful lot of Buryats, non-ethnic Russians who have been sent to the front. You're starting to see protests of women wanting, you know, their husbands and sons, you know, kind of uh, brought back again. They're starting to have a hard time recruiting in places like Dagestan, not so Mm. much Chechnya, where, I mean, there's a lot of compulsion for people to fight in the war. He knows that, you know, this grind is having an impact. And it's also when it starts to hurt people in their pocketbook. The biggest demonstrations or protests in Putin's long tenure as uh, president and prime minister of Russia since 2000 have been over pocketbook issues. And then also over this kind of sense um, of unfairness, of injustice in some regards, and of him, you know, kind of keeping himself in power. He's not popular that popular in Moscow and St. Petersburg. I mean, a lot of people, you know, when they you get down into the depths of the polling, you know, it looks a little bit like some of that polling about Donald Trump right now. People would actually mm. like an alternative. And although they're not going to not support him in this war, or they're just going to try to pretend it's not happening and look the other way if it's not a full-on war and there's not on full-on mobilization. Russia is often ripe for protests, particularly on Mm. socioeconomic issues. And so he's gonna worry about that towards we get towards that term because there's another reason here. There are people around Putin who actually believe he's not justified in having this next set of two terms. He was supposed to be up in terms of the, the most recent two sets of terms in 2024. He extended out his ability to run again in 2020 out for another 12 years, out till 2036 which will put him into his 80s at that point, because he hadn't got it figured out about succession. And the yeah. more weakened he appears, the less legitimate he appears, the less it appears that he's popular or his conduct is popular, the more incentive there is for others then to try to manoeuvre around him and to kind of push on succession. You know, Putin no. didn't obviously want to announce uh, that he wasn't going to run. I mean, he never does. You know, He doesn't want to be a lame duck. But, you know, there's all of these pressures now and he has to handle all of those. So Mm -hmm. he wants to also get this conflict over with. He wants to seem legitimate. Of course, there's not going to be any real opposition if he doesn't want there to be. Last time he ran against... Ksenia Sobchak, uh, the uh, daughter of his old mentor Anatoly Sobchak, is even rumoured to be his goddaughter. That was clearly not, uh, you know, anything okay, in terms of opposition position. But there is opposition there. The, the main opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, who made no secret of the fact that he wants to be president and would like to have a chance, a shot at the presidency, has been, you know, uh, had an assassination attempt against him and is now in uh, hard labour in a in a penal colony. And Putin has tried to wrap up all of that. That is not. The, um, the sign of somebody who is confident about mm. the feature and somebody who is using repression because they have got concerns. And so I think everything that we see now, you know, we'll have to watch very closely. He wants us to be the ones who feel that we don't have time when actually he also has time ticking. And, you wow. know, the more this goes on, the more there is this grind. You know the more risk for him even if the economy looks like it's flush with rubles right now from high oil and gas prices they can't really buy anything with them you know over time you know we're seeing um as you pointed out at the very beginning there they're hurting in the military it's a difficult of you know basically renewing the equipment their ability to sell arms for hard uh, you know kind of currency you know is is impinged upon all of uh, mm-hmm. you know the precepts of the economy over the medium to longer term have been hurt by this, and we'll see that they're hurt by this Mm. as we get into the next year.
0: That's just fascinating, Fiona, because, I mean, some of this runs against what you're describing, some of what is becoming maybe conventional wisdom among, I think, policymakers in the West, uh, columnists in the West who are, you know, describing their fears of a grind for the West. But it's very interesting to hear what you describe um, about Putin's fears as well. But given what you say, um, how then should we interpret how he would game out the next three or four months leading into the winter? Because, I mean, at least if the war started in a way that sort of surprised him, um, uh, you know, at least, uh, you know, that's how we've assessed it and that he he didn't expect it to go as badly as it did. And in the initial stages, it seems like there are fewer variables now, right? So it, it seems a little bit more predictable um, in that, you, you know, The last few weeks also have seen them regain some territory. So how do you see that playing out?
1: Well, as you said um you know kind of the the Russians at the very beginning are you know trying to consolidate their hold over Donbass at this particular region at this particular moment that that region, but you know there is a problem you know when we think about the number of troops that they have about retaining control not just of that territory but this enormous front line of several you know thousand miles that has already uh now developed from you know places like Kherson and mikolaev um over um you know to uh the west all the way across the Sea of Azov, you know, and onwards. And then, you know, these continuous attacks on Kiev and menacing of Edessa mm. and all these embargoes in the Black Sea. That takes a lot of manpower as well and a lot of effort. So, you know, how is Putin going to game that out? He's going to try to make it as easy for him as possible. They can keep on, you know, kind of terrorising everybody, uh, lobbing, you know, missiles all over the place. I mean, all of this um, attacks on civilians are intended to do just that. They can keep on putting the embargo on grain, and making it very difficult because then the um the uh assumption of putin is that and it's a fair assumption that the turks the lebanese the african union everybody will start putting pressure on the united states and the west and nato because he's saying that that's the result of their sanctions which it mm. isn't of course it's him deliberately you know manipulating famine and you know the the whole threats to food security globally but manipulating famine in africa you know to put us all on the in the, in the hot seat as the bad guys here and then it's also this just what we've laid out the fact that there's this conventional common wisdom now that we can't stand this that our economies are so fragile and our policies are so fragile which actually you know seem like a fair assessment in the case of the united states and you know perhaps also germany you know if you have the collapse of their industry if the you know the russians don't put Nord Stream one you know back online again that then we are going to um capitulate so putin's game is to have us defeat ourselves hmm. you know basically because we can't you know, imagine, you know, kind of being able to take this out over several years. I mean, I've had journalists, mm. you know, call me said, oh, my God, could this last for 15 years? You know, could this be, you know, kind of an endless war? What do we do if that's the case? Well, Putin wants us to think that. But does, does he mm. want to have that really endless war? That statement that we're not even begun yet? That's for our consumption.
0: Mm. You that's know, so
1: um... We will scare ourselves into handing over Ukraine.
0: On the question of mind games, um, and I'm going to bring in a viewer question to, to get to the issue of mind games. Uh, James Belford asks, um, if there's reason for concern that if Putin's backed into a corner, he'll resort to using nuclear weapons, which could result in World War III. And the the mind game aspect I wanted to bring in here is, you know, there's a story I've, I've read in several places now of people recounting about Putin's childhood, where, you know, as a child, He chased a rat around his family's apartment building, trapped it in a corner, and then it lashed out at him. And Putin's sort of supposed takeaway from that was that there's no retreat. You you have to fight to the bitter end. Um, Now, of course, that's, I'm guessing, what he wants us to think, right? So I guess coming back to James's question about Putin being backed into a corner and the issue of nuclear weapons, how do you assess... Uh, his sort of calculations around this because obviously he wants us to think he would lash out.
1: Exactly, and look—the only um, documentation of that story is Vladimir Putin telling that. Story, <laughs> That's right. You know, to his kind of biographers for a sort of a semi autobiography called right. "In the First Person," that he did right. as a campaign book back in right. 2000, when he'd sparked off war in Chechnya again. So the, the great caveat that was basically fighting the Chechens. You know, the who are now fighting his set them out to fight in Ukraine, but in that case to the bitter end. So he's been a wartime president from the very beginning in the context of a domestic, you know, civil war, um, or really war of Moscow with one of its regions in 99, 2000, when that um, book is put forward to, you know, where we see him now, he's about to embark on another set potentially of presidential terms. And in in terms of nuclear weapons, the idea of World War Three, I've actually said out there, look, we're already in World War Three in terms of this being Mm. an epoch making conflict and there's war by many means here there's been an information war he's already annexed territory and and what i mean by you know kind of a, a war let's just sort of you know think about it and take that back you know world war I wasn't a nuclear war but you know there was a using of, of mustard you know gas and chlorine putin has already used novichok polonium mm. you know and all kinds of other you know chemical weapons uh, in aiding and abetting bashar al-assad in the case of syria uh, there's been paramilitary forces that have already engaged in uh, a firefight with U.S. special forces in Syria in 2018 when hundreds of Russians were killed and injured. You know, we've already been in conflict with the Russians directly. It's just that, you know, it's all been unfolding uh, over a very long you know, period of time. We've already had gas cutoffs against Ukraine in 2006 and 2009. We've been in this for a very long time. Hmm. In fact, you know Putin is always, you know, basically saying here Ukraine belongs to Russia. This is all history. You know, he takes us on these historical magical mystery tours. You know, all of the time for justification. Sometimes he blames NATO. Sometimes he blames the European Union. And then he's always trying to find what are the hot button issues uh, that he can press to scare people. World War Three. You know, everybody thinks that's going to be a nuclear war. So of course he starts on the nuclear saber rattling. Now, in uh, 2019 of the G20. In Osaka in the last meeting that I sat in between Trump and Putin, he already threatened Trump about, you know, invoking the idea of the Euro missile crisis of the 1980s over the US pullout of INF, basically saying if there are no treaties uh, left to underpin European security, what's going to happen then, Donald? He says, you know, your European allies won't want to go back to the time of the Euro missile crisis. He also, when he was announcing that they had developed hypersonic uh, missiles and other novel nuclear mm. weapons he had this great display behind a, you know one of his national addresses to the parliament showing a simulated missile attack on a peninsula that looks suspiciously like Florida, you know, if you remember, you know, mm. back that in this same time frame. So he's always been in the business, you know, most recently of nuclear sabre rattling, showing, you know, what he's got and, you know, what he can do. There are ads in uh, the you know, the Russian papers showing Sarmat, one of their missiles, coming off from Moscow and coming around the globe and appearing to hit Cleveland, Ohio or somewhere, That's mm. what it kind of looks like, you know, when you look at the maps here. This cartoonish Marvel, you know, kind of uh comic style of intimidation then there's moving through the chernobyl exclusion zone with the military shooting deliberately at the chernobyl plant and the zaporizhia nuclear plant knowing that this will scare the heck out of the germans who are already worried about civilian nuclear power and what can happen and then there's all the saber rattling when he thought that the war was not going in his direction in ukraine threatening to use so- a nuclear weapon then so it's it, the pattern is crystal clear it's a pattern of intimidation here Mm -hmm. and you know if he did feel that it was necessary you know as some kind of demonstration effect everyone worries about but pushing back against him i mean he hasn't done this lately for a while why because things are going a bit better and i do think he might have got some complaints from the chinese and others behind the scenes
2: you're listening to foreign policy playlist we'll be right back
0: My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman.
2: I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The
0: ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind you know given what you say um and i, I want to bring in some more your questions as well but um uh just quickly what given all these the smoke and mirrors what would he consider a victory at this point
1: well he has actually said that there is no victory short of you know basically wiping ukraine off the map he said it ukraine is a colony belongs to russia you know, kind of, I haven't given up on, you know, these goals of taking Ukraine and, you know, we still see shelling of Kiev and cities, you know, kind of much further away from the Donbass front. I think there is a risk to, you know, kind of part of the, of the question, the way you phrase it, victory at this point, right? Hmm. Because he would clearly see a success in having taken all of Donbass region, of Donetsk and Luhansk, so And we can see him pushing out to the administrative borders of both of those regions which he's also had the Russian parliament recognise as independent at this point. Mm. So I think the risk is that he kind of declares an operational pause or a truce at the point where he reaches that to try to consolidate those gains. And then we all kind of think, oh, thank God, you know, now we're going to have negotiations. And it is really nothing more than a truce, you know, kind of to punctuate, you know, what's really kind of an ongoing conflict in his mind. And that, you know, then he can consolidate the gains, but also cut some of the losses and try to regroup, and that we'd then be at it again at some other point. We saw that with Minsk one and Minsk two. You know, we, we, it's hard for us to remember back again, all of those series of events in, you know, from 2014 and 15 and 16, when, you know, there was all the uh, fighting kind of uh, upsurged at different points, and then they'd pull back, and then they'd try to force the Ukrainians into some other negotiations. And then so the Ukrainians weren't abiding by them, and then, you know, be back at it again. That's the cycle that we really risk
0: here. Mm-hmm. Um, Timothy Reed has a great question about Russian troop capacity uh, in Ukraine, um, and he's just asking that you know, given that it seems like Russia's struggling to support the troops it already has, um, you know, are there any thorough analyses out there of Russia's real capacity in terms of how many more troops it could send in in the coming months, if need be?
1: Yeah, there's some actually really good reports. Because I'll be honest, that this is not my you know kind mm. of area of specialisation. Uh, by the Royal United Services Institute in mm-hmm. London, RUSI, they've they've done a recent report looking at this, and then um, several colleagues that I work with in the government, um, at, who are now at the Centre for Naval Analysis, CNA, in, um, uh, in Virginia and Washington DC area, mm. people like Michael Kaufman, uh, Jeffrey Edmonds um there are there are a whole host of uh, i think really very competent military analysts um you know out there who are you know writing um about this uh and who you know are asking questions uh, it's not to say that they don't think that you know russia can uh pull together through uh, trying to recruit paramilitaries more paramilitaries contract forces and you know people from impoverished areas of russia but there is that kind of feeling that they're having to do a mm. stealth mobilization here offering Mm. prisoners you know for example kind of amnesty Mm. if they join the military because Mm. they don't want to have and Putin doesn't want to have in this you know kind of critical period a full-on mobilization that would bring in you know the kids of the elites because that's when he gets a backlash including from the people around him who may support this special military operation but don't want to shed their own blood or their Mm. own family's blood for this and we saw in the cases of Afghanistan and in Chechnya The backlash, and we start seeing that now, even in Buryatia, you know, kind of a a place, you know, miles and miles away from Moscow and a handful of women at this particular point. But the soldiers' mothers' organisation, that organised around Afghanistan and all of the losses and in Chechnya, became a quite powerful political force. that Putin Mm. has tried to extirpate completely at this this point. In the run-up to the war, he got rid of all these organisations, clamped down on them, repressed them, scared the heck out of, you know, the women and others who were organised, which again shows that he's nervous about this. And that if, if these losses are as high as people say, that is a problem.
0: Mm.
1: But it becomes a real problem when it's in major population centres where people can organise and kind of protest. If it's out in the sticks, and I remember thinking of, you know, Russia extending over so many time zones, this vast expanse, mm. it's much more difficult to bear pressure on Moscow. But if it's in Moscow and it's in St Petersburg, that's what happened when he returned to the presidency. 2011 2012 all of the protests and the Bolotnaya square you know the the acceleration that gave to the movement of alexei navalny and others i mean those are the kinds of things that he's worried about i mean we should not think that putin has everything going in his favor all the time
0: Mm, that's fascinating um i want to widen the aperture a little bit um because the the world's response to the war in ukraine has just been fascinating on the one hand you know, Europe and, and, and the United States have sort of coalesced. Um, as I said earlier, NATO is better funded. Finland and Sweden will now end up joining. Um, you know, the, the troop deployments are are impressive. Um, but on the other hand, the rest of the world, uh, much of the global south, some of the world's biggest democracies, uh, have refused to condemn Russia. I mean, India, for example, has dramatically upped the amount of uh, crude oil it's taking in from uh, Russia. So is China. Um, when Putin looks at sort of the bigger picture global response, both in the West but also the rest, how do you think he assesses that?
1: Oh, I mean, he thinks this is really going in his direction, you know, for all the reasons that you lay out there. And this is the product of um, Russian disinformation. Um, some of my so? uh, uh, Brookings colleagues um, have a, uh, a, a, an analysis of uh, Twitter in Africa, for example, with various hashtags. I just you know, recommend people just having a quick look at it because it's very interesting. It's showing the traction that um, you know, Russian propaganda is getting in Africa in terms of shaping some of these views here. And part of the view. Sorry, my dog is barking in the background here. Not <laughs> also the result of Russian propaganda and disinformation here, but uh, I think somebody rang the doorbell. But the um, you know okay. basically what's um, the, the viewpoint is, uh, and it's again it's part and parcel of you know Putin, you know getting the message out there that this is NATO, this is the fault of the collective West, which is what he said in July seventh. You know he's got the Pope, Pope Francis saying, you know somehow perhaps Russia was provoked by NATO and NATO expansion. Yep. And in, you know, the global South, people have long you know memories of obviously imperialism from Europe, you know, kind of uh, imperial attitudes and then their view of actions of the United States, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, you know, particularly uh, important in the Middle East. But, you know, the United States not really always being out there as a, a benign power. And they tend to think of Russia as the Soviet Union, as the leader of the non-aligned movement and the champion of all of the post-colonialist marxist liberation uh, militaries and forces uh, in africa and 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 elsewhere and so russia has kind of you know basically keeps presenting itself not as an imperial power trying to take back an old colony but as fighting a proxy war against Mm. the the west against nato and against the united states it's meant to delegitimize you know this kind of propaganda the whole um, idea of what ukraine is going through and they're also telling uh africans and uh people in the middle east it's the west sanctions that are cutting off grain and you know it's the west sanctions that of course are you know (laughs) raising oil and energy prices that's true but um it's certainly not the case with grain and in the food security where you know putin has deliberately taken you know this hostage and is of course destroying and laying waste to ukraine and then you know the whole idea that this ukrainian false flags They've got a lot of traction in China because of China's very worried about, you know, the fact that the uh, NATO or forms of NATO structures will get transplanted into uh, the Asia Pacific region. You know, it's no surprise that China, you know, felt feels quite hostile towards NATO now because NATO has been trying Mm -hmm. to formulate an approach towards uh, China. And, you know, Putin, I mean, they've been great at messaging and we have been not so great. And I think mm. part of it is because as we as the messengers, the United States, United Kingdom, and some of the other European countries, we're not the best conveyors of this kind of message about what's happening to Ukraine. Mm. And, you know, I've said many times that, you know, I think you should get the Canadians, you know, and the Finns and the Irish and others, you know, out on the road with the Ukrainians explaining what's happening here. And the Finns made it very clear when they joined NATO that this isn't because they're not being forced into NATO. Remember, uh, President Ninister said to Putin, look in the mirror. You know for why we're joining it's because they see this unbridled aggression and the destruction of all of the mechanisms for keeping peace in europe and because they feel also threatened by all of this discussion about putin being peter the great and trying to take territory back again because peter the great took finland as well as did you know kind of other you know successive czars so you know this is all part and parcel of a problem we have of messaging and of you know being really Uh, focused on the international diplomatic aspects of this. We've Mm. got to think who is the messenger as well as, you know, kind of how we stick on this, uh, this message. But it's going to be hard. I mean, I think as you framed it in the question and as, you know, the people are thinking, it's not going to be that easy to get those points across.
0: Right, exactly, and there's so much baggage, as you pointed out, colonization, but also yep. the way Afghanistan ended uh, other oh, exactly. conflicts, or Yemen Iraq, so many oh, yemen,
1: you know, exactly. why didn't you care about this? Why didn't you care right. about this the Russians The arguments are, are
0: easy to make,
1: yeah, what about ism? you know i mean i I have had that many times. I mean, I just gave a talk recently in London a like lot. The questions were like, well, what about the United States and Iraq? Yeah, right. I mean, the United States you know committed all kinds of you know, uh, crimes if one, you know, kind of pulls it all the way out in uh, in Iraq. And um, people are saying, well, but of course it doesn't justify what Russia's it, doing in Ukraine. That's the problem. Right,
0: exactly. And that's, in a sense, what the West has to keep coming back to. I, I want to spend one more beat on China because um, I feel like the world knows less about how Putin views China, where he sees uh, Russia fitting into China's rise. Uh, you know, because the, the other framework we've been looking at of Russia playing spoiler for the West, uh, I think is more well trodden. Uh, but given how uh, China's responding to this war, given that uh, NATO now has China sort of formally declared as a strategic threat, uh, China can't be best pleased with the way everything's turning out. Um, how would Putin, uh, how does Putin see Xi? Uh, what can you tell us about uh, that relationship?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment here because James Belford quite rightly pointed out that the U.S. did not target civilian targets in Iraq, and it's a that's bad right. comparison. I'm saying it's other people's comparison, just to be clear.
0: That's correct. Because
1: that's kind of what I hear all the time when I give a presentation that, um, I mean, I was just a London School of Economics, and pretty much every question starts saying, well, what about what the United States do? I've got you know emails from people saying, what about what the United States did? and and yes you know and in afghanistan and you know elsewhere as well but yes the um russia is making deliberate targeting of civilian targets here so the comparison is other is 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 the rest of the world because that's what russia's saying every time and i get you know lots of russians and you know that kind of ties into china as well basically saying well the united states always gets away with it but you know russia always gets you know kind of blamed when it does something as if it's mm. a kind of a justification. So I think mm. again we have to bear that in mind whether we like it or not we think it's a bad comparison. You know I do push you know back against all this. I mean yes there was the, the premises of that invasion of 2003 were extraordinarily problematic but it's the kind of the way that people you know play it out from there just to just to make that clear so that I don't leave that kind of lingering there.
0: Thank you for that good clarification. But
1: but there is the um, you know other important point is that we came to the defense of Kuwait you know back in 1990, 1990, 1991 against Iraq when Iraq invaded Kuwait on the same premise that you know kind of uh, Russia has now invaded Ukraine and there is that you know right to self-defense enshrined within the United Nations and that's when we get into the question of China because China You know, for itself, you know, the whole time has um, been supposedly the great champion of independence, territorial um, integrity and uh, sovereignty based on its own history of uh, being predated upon by European colonial powers, including Russia back in the 19th century. The thing for China is that they do tend, to, according to a lot of my colleagues who work on China, and again, you know, just to put it out there, I'm not a China expert, but I've been spending a lot of time, like many others, trying to you know, understand this perspective. And I do know quite a bit about the Russia-China relationship. But again, the Chinese worry that the mechanisms that we have in Europe will be transplanted into um, their region and that for them, Taiwan is to China as they think that Russia thinks about Ukraine Ukraine, you know, is not a former col uh, not a colony of Russia now, but Russia thinks of Ukraine as a former colony, and Tai Ty- and Taiwan, of course, we know the history, you know, of the Kuomintang and the, you know, kind of political separation, and China, you know, lays claim to um, Taiwan in the same way that it's thinking that Russia is laying claim to Ukraine, but it's obviously different. Again, this is another, you know, one of these. There's a big difference, and you have to be very careful about making mm. a comparison. But China clearly now worries that if Russia is defeated in uh, Ukraine, and in fact that they don't make any gains that this will have a knock on effect, because of course, Mm. China has leapt in in both feet ahead of what they thought was gonna be a very brief special military operation to give Mm. support to uh, Russia and is actively engaged in, you know, Russian propaganda and disinformation. Now there is a huge risk to Russia from all of this. And I think it's evident to Russians behind the scenes that, you know, with all of the ties being cut to Europe, that they're left with the rest, Um, you know, outside of the West. And that increases their dependency on China. And China is not going to be the source of innovation for the Russian economy over the longer term. You know, China becomes the sort of sole market at some point for a lot of their raw materials. And then there is, of course, that kind of question about the rise of China militarily, having uh, re-engineered or reverse-engineered, rather, a lot of the Russian equipment that was sold over the longer period of time. Mm. And that Russia starts to look weak, you know, militarily. Now, I mean, one thing to bear in mind is that after uh, February 4th uh, and the partnership without limits that was declared by Xi and Putin on the margins um, of the the Beijing Olympics, the Russians pulled their troops or rather a lot of their troops out of the Mm -hmm. Russian Far East, because clearly they weren't worried about any kind of attack from the Chinese. But a lot of those military forces have been depleted. They also pulled them out of Tajikistan. Uh, There's a 201st uh, division motorized division in tajikistan that was supposed to be helping to protect the border with uh, afghanistan against uh, isis Horizon and taliban you know etc and they've taken a lot of losses and there's Mm. been a lot of tajiks and others you know kind of pulled into um you know the russian military so this kind of creates a great deal of vulnerability um in the russian far east and also in uh tajikistan where you know russia was much more the security guarantor will tajikistan start to look towards china and well, at some point, China's view changed. There are plenty of Chinese nationalists mm. who stress, "Hey, you know, all of this territory." Sometimes they say twenty-five percent of our territory in Manchuria was taken, you know, by the Russians in the eighteen sixties. So, I mean, all those vulnerabilities were always there in the Russian-Chinese relationship. Are still there? It's just that you know, right now there is so much invested on both sides into the strategic aspects of this partnership. But you know, down the line, if Russia appears weaker, vis-a-vis China it's a question mark right I mean I, down the line could be a long way down the line right but I, I do think that China itself um, is, is is reassessing and you know that relationship may have strains at some point
0: fascinating um I'm going to try and slip in just one last quick question given that the January 6th hearings uh, um, have continued this week and will go on through the summer um when you imagine putin looking at these hearings do you do you think he sees america as as being further weakened
1: yes <laughs> so does everybody honestly and i think that that's you know one of our real um you know problems as we move forward you know when we start to think about you know our own resilience and our own ability to you know keep pressing forward here putin is pretty much betting that you know the midterm elections will undermine uh Biden and that by 2024 you will be in such a great big mess although look remember our election comes after the russian election so we're in november and theirs mm-hmm. is supposed to be sometime in march but that all of the machinations around all of this will kind of put the us out of action and will really reduce our ability to lead so i came back from um europe you know just a little bit before july 4th you know when we were having the supreme court in fact you know mm-hmm. it was kind of coming back just after you know the supreme court ruling on roe versus wade with against the backdrop of you know kind of the efforts to try to and this is before highland park of course but to try mm-hmm. to you know deal with gun violence and you know some kind of restrictions and against the backdrop of all of the january 6th now all of those three things were being paid very close attention to in um you know basically Um, the, um, you know, circles of which I was talking to people. I don't think we fully process here how much the rest of the world feels that the United States standing is undercut by, you know, the kind of manifestations of polarisation and partisan infighting at this point Mm -hmm. over all these different issues. And gun violence um, is also kind of seen from the outside as delegitimizing American leadership. So, I mean... It's not just January 6th, it's this whole idea that the United States is out of control. And so, you know, Putin feeds into all of these. I mean, when you see, you know, Putin, you know, trying to exploit things, it's all of these hot button issues. Mm. And part of the event is obviously to pit us against each other, but it's also to make the United States look less of a leader and diminished in an international context. Because we look, you know, as somebody said to me, pretty insane from the outside.
0: We do indeed, Fiona Hill, I learned something, lots of things, lots of new things every time I, I, I hear you. So thank you so much for your time.
1: No, and thank you. And I, I mean, again, I, I just, you know, hope that, um, you know, as we, as we move forward, there'll be more chances to, you know, discuss uh, a lot of this. And it's very important, I mean, as you're pointing out in uh, the uh, pages of um, foreign policy to get these different perspectives and just not to fall into, you know, the kind of conventional wisdom, because you know, remember, Putin and all the people around him are passing everything that you and I and everybody else says and what's written here. And, you know, trying to think themselves about how they adjust the messaging. And we have to be very careful not to play into that and, you know, make decisions on our own basis, you know, from our own analysis of everything.
0: I couldn't agree more. Thank you for getting us there. Fiona Hill, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.
2: That was an FP Live episode. Our thanks to Fiona Hill for chatting with FP. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at This show is produced by Maria Jimena-Aragon, Rosie Julin, and Rob Sachs. I'm Laura rossbart Tellum. Thank you so much for listening. Till next week. Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. (laughs) And Seth Rogen.
0: (laughs) So if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Faris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.